0: evening everyone. Tonight we're reading Zechariah chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharaziah and regime Malek together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the Word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you have fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh mo- seventh months for the past seventy years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous, and then Negev and the western foothills were settled. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate that no one travelled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate.
1: Well, good evening, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Ken. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and it's great to be with you tonight uh, whether you're here in person or joining us via the live stream, as we come to a very exciting point in the book of Zechariah. Uh, if you haven't been with us for these last number of weeks, uh, we've been looking at a vision of Zechariah, over eight visions or eight parts of a vision. He's gone on this wild journey, which has basically said, God's coming back to Jerusalem, we're going to rebuild the temple, and because he's back in town, all evil must flee, uh, and so the vision has now finished, and we're moving on to the second section of the book of Zechariah. Now, a quick reminder, at WBC we've got a podcast called Deeper, and if you have questions either coming out of tonight or the series in general, then either talk to me afterwards or send a message through to Kate in the office, and we'll try to answer them. Uh, the link to where you can listen to that podcast is on the website. Now, tonight we're up to chapter 7, which we've just read, and chapter 8 as well, meaning that we're going to think together further about this vision of hope that was given to the returned exiles, the people who had come back from captivity to Jerusalem, Uh, a message that remains God's word to us today. As always, we need God's enabling if we're going to understand and respond rightly to his word, so I invite you to pray with me now. Lord God, we thank you for the book of Zechariah. Uh, We thank you that over these last number of weeks, uh, we've discovered, uh, many of us for the first time, uh, that your word, which was written a long time ago, is wonderfully relevant to our present situation. Things were written for people a long way away, a long time ago, actually are really your message to us today as well. And so as we spend time thinking about these chapters, uh, we again ask that by your spirit you would enable us not only to understand what the words mean, but that they'd sink deep down into our hearts so that we actually live them out to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a kid, the 40-hour famine required going without food from Friday night through to lunchtime on Sunday in exchange for sponsorship but there was a loophole for those in the know. You could drink as much water as you wanted, and even more importantly, you could eat as much barley sugar as you wanted. While it did raise awareness and needed funds for the malnourished, in hindsight, I'm not so sure the allowance of unlimited lollies was either sensible or consistent with famine conditions. But these days, perhaps our experience of fasting is even more out of step with how the Bible portrays fasting. For many of us, the only time that we do fast is when the doctor requires it for a blood test, or if you've gotten on the bandwagon and tried intermittent fasting to attempt to lose weight. Fasting for religious reasons, as we've just read of, seems restricted to Catholics at Lent or Muslims for Ramadan. In fact, fasting for religious purposes may raise suspicions that it's a hunger strike trying to manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. Now, amongst other things, these few examples of fasting clearly show that while the action may be identical, the motivations for not eating can be very different to raise money for accurate blood tests for a special religious event. What we need to recognise to make sense of Zechariah chapter 7 and 8 is to understand that fasting in the Bible is almost always connected with mourning as a way to physically express the seriousness of the accompanying feelings and prayers. It demonstrates on the outside what we're feeling on the inside. People fast because they're devastated by the seriousness of their sin. They feel broken because someone they loved was dying or has died. Or they desperately want God to intervene in a situation which is impossible for them to resolve. And so, for example, we see all Israel fasting and wearing sackcloth in repentance. King David fasting when he, his son is near death. Queen Esther calling on all of the people to fast as a part of calling on God to reverse wicked Haman's plans. Fasting is a profound, lived-out expression of a deep inner grief, a desperation for God to act. Or at least it can be. Unfortunately, as we all know in many different situations, pretending is possible. And the reality is that we simply cannot know whether outwardly expressed sorrow is authentic or not. Sandpaper Gate was the name given to the cheating scandal that hit the Australian cricket team back in 2018. Steve Smith, as captain at the time, bore much of the responsibility and was punished with a ban from all but club cricket for a whole year. Some thought his punishment was an overreaction. Some thought he should never be allowed to play the game again. In his teary press conference, after they returned from South Africa, he took full responsibility for what he called his serious errors of judgment, his failure of leadership. Now, fast forward to the Oscars this year, and another Mr Smith, this time Will Smith, slaps Chris Rock and then later tearfully apologizes for his actions. Were the tears of one Mr Smith genuine? and the others just acting? Which one was which? Did they both say sorry just because society demanded them to, or because something had authentically changed within them? Neither Mr. Smith was expected to fast as an expression of their regret, but is there actually anything that could possibly confirm their sincerity While the presenting issue of these chapters is that of fasting, I think that there's actually a deeper underlying issue of what is genuine repentance and what does it achieve? What is genuine repentance? What does it achieve? We're going to look at the two chapters, actually, in three parts. What we've read, chapter 7, genuine repentance leads to loving action. And then in chapter 8, God's return brings holiness back and feasting is for all. We're all answering this question, what is genuine repentance and what does it achieve? Well, verse 1 tells us, verse 1 of chapter 7 tells us, that we've actually moved forward in time from Zechariah's wild vision, which had taken place about two years earlier. In the intervening time, significant progress had been made on the building of the temple. And we, we know from the book of Ezra, also in the Old Testament, that the temple would be finished about two years from this part, which is a great thing. It's actually an indicator that the vision didn't go unnoticed. People had actually taken care to respond to it and put it into action. But in verses 2 and 3, we find out that it also led to people from a town called Bethel, a little town just to the north of Jerusalem, to send representatives to ask the priests and the prophets, have we fasted for long enough already? Now The assumption behind the question is that because things are going so well, it must be an indicator that God is blessing our efforts. And therefore, we can stop being sad about the sins that led us to be sent off into exile. In answer, God sends a word this time, a question, rather than a vision or an enacted sign in verses 5 and 6. Ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Now, while there is a very heavily implied rebuke in these questions, recognise that the explicit necessary response is for the people to consider their motives. Stop and think. Evaluate. The people are asking, can we finish mourning yet? And God responds, before I answer that question, ask yourselves, have you repented yet? While the exiles had been fastidious about fasting for the past 70 years, there was a very real danger that had become a mere ritual rather than expressing total dependence upon God. Now, I've made the comparison before that the exile was, in some sense, like a 70-year time out. Now, on those incredibly rare occasions where I was sent to my room as a child, or found myself sitting in detention at school, most of my pondering on what I had done wrong revolved around my ongoing belief that everything I had said or done was completely justified. In my thinking, I was unfairly doing time for a crime that I hadn't even committed. So unsurprisingly, it didn't produce or express any change in my attitude. And likewise, God's word through Zechariah reveals that exile couldn't bring about an automatic transformation of Israel's hearts either. Genuine sorrow is not measured by the frequency of our fasting, in the volume of our tears, even in our willingness to accept the rightness of the punishment that we're undergoing. The surprising proof that would reveal the people's hearts had changed was how they treated others, especially the disadvantaged. Have a look at verses 8 to 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Sounds pretty familiar to a flying scroll, doesn't it? Don't steal. Don't lie in court. But to me it feels like a very surprising expectation at this point. The most famous Old Testament passage dealing with the the sin of Israel that caused the exile is found in 2 Kings chapter 17. It says in that passage multiple times that the sin which led to exile was idolatry. But Zechariah now says that it was the ongoing refusal of God's people to turn from their mistreatment of others that had made God so angry that he sent them into the exile. So was their chief sin idolatry, or was it the mistreatment of others? Well, I think the best answer is that they're, they're two, two sides of the same coin. Our view of God and others are actually so closely related that how we treat people is the evidence of how we think about God. If God is most important, we will treat others well. If God is not given first place, we will inevitably put ourselves first and that will show in how we think of and treat others. God's answer to this group asking about ending their fasting is to point to the past selfish injustice that their forefathers were punished for with the heavily implied question, have you... Made any changes yet. Now, sadly, their ancestors ignored God's warning, verse 11 and 12, and in response, God sent the unrepentant into exile. How would Zachariah's listeners respond now? Would they change their actions and show that they were genuinely sorry? Would they learn from their ancestors' wrong response and do right? Well, chapter 7 doesn't tell us how Zechariah's audience responded. The implied question is left hanging. And so I think it's very appropriate for us to ask, how have we responded to this word from God? Especially when this principle is developed by Jesus himself in his summary of the law as love for God and love for neighbour. His parable of the sheep and the goats, judgment, based upon what they did and didn't do for others. James's statement that religion that is acceptable is to look after orphans and widows, that faith without works is dead. Too often, I think that we treat grace as if it's a doctrine only to be understood with our minds, having benefits for our souls. We conclude that how clearly we can think or speak about salvation is the whole measure of whether we've received it or not. But chapter 7 calls out saying sorry with our words and then continuing to live in a way that reveals we never actually were sorry. Doesn't God's answer here push back and ask us, how much is the forgiveness that we've received motivating us to forgive others? How is he saving us? Causing us to treat the disadvantaged better. Do we walk past that person asking for change unmoved by their need, though we were rescued from far more dire circumstances? Is our fear of accepting asylum seekers into Australia driven by a selfish desire to maintain our own unjust standards of living? Now, they're all good things to ponder and no doubt there's many, many others that we could consider. It is right to repent where necessary and a resolve to change, but that is only one small part of the answer. Chapter 7, I hope, feels unfinished to you because it is. It needs to be read together combined with chapter 8, which is part 2 of God's answer to this question. Having been told... To contemplate their own response chapter 8 reveals how god is responding and after the dark shadows of chapter 7 the brightness of chapter 8 is dazzling have a look at chapter 8 verses 2 and 3 this is what the lord almighty says i am very jealous for zion i'm burning with jealousy for her this is what the lord says i will return to zion and dwell in jerusalem Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. Now, we might have concluded that after 70 years of not really repenting, God might give up on this hard-hearted bunch of rebels. But the people's unawareness of their deeply ingrained sin was no surprise to God. Despite their unrepentance, he remains committed to his plan to return to Zion, another name for the city of Jerusalem. God's burning jealousy for her, which from the context is both the city itself and the people that live there. and Because he's jealous, that means that despite their unrepentance, God is acting to restore faithfulness and holiness. And the way he is going to do that has already been pictured in the visions in chapters 1 to 6. Now... The meaning of that vision is put into words. God is going to return to live with his people. And that will return things to the way that they should be. He will make it possible for young and old, two of the most easily oppressed groups in society, to live in peace in Jerusalem. He's going to do something everybody else will be absolutely amazed at. But comes as no surprise to him. He will achieve their salvation. Have a look at verses 7 and 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the East and the West. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people. And I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. What an incredible picture. God acting single-handedly to bring about what his people were incapable of doing on their own. Doesn't this, again, drip with grace? Yes, he's called on the returned exiles to repent, to make sure that they've genuinely repented. But the only one active in chapter 8, verses 1 to 8, is God. I am jealous. I will return. I will save. I will bring them back. So does that mean that we're just simply passive recipients? Well, let's read on verse 9. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Now hear these words. Let your hands be strong so that the temple may be built. This is also what the prophets said who were present when the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord Almighty. Drop down then to verses 16 and 17. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. While God saves us without any contribution from us, once we're saved, a response is necessary. And again, it's expressed in tangible actions in two directions build the temple. Verse 9, that is, love God. Speak the truth. Render sound judgment. Don't plot evil. Verses 16 to 17, that is, love your neighbor. What this confirms is that the law was never intended to save. God wants us to recognize that we have sinned. That there have been times when we haven't loved him or others. The point of fasting was not to pester God until he acted, doing what we wanted. It was to learn complete dependence on him. And so should we fast these days? Well, I'm going to try and deal with that question in a little bit more detail in the podcast. But to hint at the answer that you'll hear there, isn't there a lot of things that we can do to show our dependence upon God? To pray? To take a rest day once a week? to give of our time and finances, celebrate communion. There's absolutely nothing magical about fasting that makes it more effective than other means. But at the same time, for a generation that is even more impatient for immediate responses, I think it's pretty obvious that we can learn from choosing to go without But in the end, it's not the activity that matters most, it's the attitude. I think the first half of chapter 8 is already pretty amazing, but God hasn't finished yet. While the restoration of Jerusalem and his return to live with us, with his people, is almost beyond imagining, in verses 18 to 23, God goes even further. Have a look at chapter 8, verse 19. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the 4th, 5th, 7th and 10th months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth and peace. Fasting is going to become feasting. Sadness replaced with this great celebration. The point of genuine repentance was not to be sad enough to somehow deserve getting what we want, but rather to stop long enough to recognise that God would provide what he had always intended to, as he first did in the Garden of Eden, as he did with the manna in the wilderness, and then the abundance of the Promised Land, he is again going to provide a feast for his people. It's no wonder that this picture becomes a theme that Jesus repeats and John picks up in the book of Revelation. God is not in the business of handing out rations, barely sufficient to keep his people alive. His intention is to shower blessings beyond number on us. Not calorie-controlled, portion-restricted servings, but an abundance far beyond what we could ever need. And as if the promise of a royal banquet to a people who've only just come out of exile in Babylon wasn't enough already, the final picture must have been absolutely beyond comprehension for them have a look at verses 20 to 22 this is what the lord almighty says many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say let us go at once to entreat the lord and seek the lord almighty i myself am going and many peoples and powerful nations will come to jerusalem to seek the lord almighty and to entreat him The party to end all parties is going to have a very surprising guest list. No longer is it just the Jews celebrating the feast. People from all languages and nations will come to celebrate along with them. They will plead to come because they've heard the last words of verse 23, Emmanuel, God is with us was talking to a friend after church this morning, and he said, man, that's the type of evangelism I want to be involved in, walking around and people just coming up and grabbing you. Come on, take me to God. (laughs) And so we see that God does it yet again. Like he's done throughout the book of Zechariah, they're thinking small. They think, oh, maybe it could be this. And God says, no, it's bigger than that. The beginning of chapter 7, an envoy is sent to entreat God about calling off the annual fast. And God says your thinking is way too small. His answer is, I'm coming back to live with you. And all of your fasting is going to become feasting. All of your sorrow will become joy. All of your longing, I'm going to fill to overflowing. And though that is too amazing to get your minds around, there's even more. Chapter 8 finishes with envoys from many peoples and powerful nations in treating God, just as chapter 7 started. This vision of hope is for the whole world. And surely the implication is that any lesser goal for us is far too inadequate. If we are only fasting and praying for the things that we long for, we haven't yet been caught up with the plans that God has. If we only care about it and invest in what our church is doing, then our vision's too small. Sure, God wants to reach those in Wollongong and the the Illawarra, but he won't stop until he's reached the world. My default is to be overwhelmed by my own needs, to see all the problems. Oh, if I go there, it's going to be really hard. For me to ask God to act amongst those people that I know, the problems that I know that they're dealing with. But if we genuinely repent, God wants us to lift our eyes beyond ourselves and what we know and make us a part of his worldwide plan. We started off by asking what is genuine repentance and what does it achieve? It is being graciously reoriented to see and be a part of God's plan of restoration. It does require us to reflect on and acknowledge our sin But it also demands that the grace we've received overflows to our neighbours in practical ways. And so it's only as we treat the disadvantaged and oppressed well that shows and develops our righteousness and enables us to begin to really comprehend our salvation as we pray for victims of war, as we give time to and get involved in the spread of the gospel. What is the purpose of fasting and what does it achieve? I think the point of genuine repentance was not to be sad enough to somehow deserve getting what we want, but rather to stop long enough to recognise that God would provide what he has always intended to. Have we stopped long enough to receive the vision of hope that God has given to his people through Zechariah? Are we bursting with excitement for the feast at which people from every language going to be present living as we do this side of the cross do we see that zachariah was not simply pointing forward to a rebuilt jerusalem but to a brand new heavens and earth and so rejoice and let your hands be strong let's pray almighty god we thank you so much that you lift our eyes You take us to places that we couldn't dare to dream of or imagine and you show us an ending that's almost beyond comprehension and yet this is your truth that's revealed here in the book of Zechariah and is repeated as an echo, a chorus throughout the rest of Scripture over and over and over again. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to genuinely repent Let us slow down long enough to actually understand what your plan is and help us get caught up in it so that our lives overflow with the joyfulness of what you have promised your people and you are promised to provide for your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.